This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 38, Monday, February 14, 1983. This is Valentine's Day, and just a word about the significance of it. It's named after St. Valentine, who died in 270 A.D. What we do on Valentine's Day now has no connection whatsoever with St. Valentine, a man well worth remembering, and I think it might be worth talking about him for a minute or two. Let me say, first of all, it's about 40 years ago that I really looked into what was available about the life of St. Valentine, so I can only give you a fragment. St. Valentine was a very different uh, kind of man than most of the men in the early church because he was obviously a man with a sense of humor. He was prominent in the church in Rome, and among other things, he was the treasurer. When, during one persecution, the Roman authorities came to his place to seize the church treasury, Valentine, or Valentinus, had advance warning of what they were planning to do. So he had immediately taken all the treasury of the churches to the street by his door and handed it to the poor people in the streets. So that when the Roman authorities came to seize the treasury, he pointed to the poor on the streets and said, These are Christ's treasures and treasury. We have two conflicting reports of his death. He was a thorn in the flesh to the Roman authorities, not only because of his faith, but because of his quiet sense of humor with which he dealt with the problems of persecution. One account, and one that I suspect is more commonly accepted, is that he was beheaded. However, there is another story which I think has the ring of truth to it because Unlike any other saint story, any other account of martyrdom, it shows something of the quiet humor of St. Valentine. According to this story, the Romans, in anger, decided to punish Valentinus as severely as possible and decided to uh, burn him to death. And they put him on a grill and uh, <clears throat> lit a fire to make his death as painful as possible and have this man who had given them so many problems screaming for mercy. All that Valentine said according to this story was that at a critical point, a little before he died, he looked up at his persecutors and said, Turn me over. I'm done on this side now. Now, I don't think that story was invented. It smacks too much of reality. And uh, Valentine was the only one of the saints of the early church who seems to have had a sense of humor throughout all the persecutions. He's well worth remembering. It's too bad that it is now Valentine's Day instead of Saint Valentine's Day, with an emphasis on the saint and who he was and what he stood for. 
Well, I believe just before my last easy chair, I was preparing to go to Montana to testify there on uh, legislation coming up before a Senate committee to control Christian schools. Incidentally, as usual, there was a parade of people for the control of Christian schools. And sad to relate, these were, apart from the state officials, superintendents of county schools and state uh, board officials, a couple of representatives of the Catholic parochial schools and a number of Protestant fundamentalist schools. That's a sad situation which repeats itself over and over again across the country. Well, I enjoyed my visit there. Montana's a great state. It's like stepping back into the America I knew some years ago, a country of self-reliant and strong people. I enjoyed it thoroughly. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the candor and openness of the men in the Senate, you knew where they stood, pro and con, or in between. It was an honest situation, a refreshing one, even though it was unpleasant to have to give battle to such a measure. I also read on the way the new copy of Geo magazine for January of 1983 with an interesting article about an English woman who settled in uh, eastern Montana in 1889 with her well-born husband. The woman, whose name was uh, Evelyn Flower before her marriage uh, to Ewan Cameron, came from a well-bred Victorian family she had French governesses when she was young, and she exchanged all this for a life of hardship and adventure in a crude wooden ranch house. Here was a woman who was used to having everything done for her, and now she was in a hard-working ranching situation with her husband. Her diary has been discovered, and a typical entry for Saturday, October 7, 1899. Arose 5.50 a.m. Jan, their dog, woke me up out of a deep sleep, scratching at our door to be let in. Breakfast started. Fed chickens and milk roni. Cut up uh, squashes and cucumbers. Uh, breakfast at 8.40. Cleaned our room. Washed up. Skinned out a little horned owl for Ewan. Began to wash 12.15. Lunch 1.40. Worked up uh, sponge yeast into dough. Made dough into loaves. Printed five negative plates and spotted plates. Two plates require too much doctoring for scratches to print from. This made me late getting washing done. One sheet, seven towels, eight dishcloths, three pillowcases, two aprons, two blouses, six flannel shirts, two vests, one pair of drawers, two flannel combis, four pair of socks, one nightgown, scrubbed floor, baked and put supper on, 440, fed pups, fed chicks, milked, 
I churned after supper two pounds, four ounces butter, wrote diary. Now, her life was one of manual labor, and she goes on to write about breaking colts which she liked and branding calves and cutting down trees, working in the garden. And when the weather got bad, going out to the barn to close up the chinks with a combination paste of flour and horse manure. She did all this and uh, loved it. It's a very interesting account of a vigorous, capable woman who, from a position of having never to work, took with gusto to a life of manual labor, became a notable amateur photographer, and took some choice pictures of Montana in those years. I picked up a number of other books on Montana, and uh, all very interesting. They do put out some very interesting Western Americana in the uh, Montana press. I also picked up a copy of a very interesting speech by a Montanan, Tom Halverson, to the Williston chapter of the American Petroleum Institute, delivered Tuesday, February the 1st, 1983. He deals with the uh, shutdown, virtually, of the petroleum industry in uh, Montana. And he says, several non-governmental factors contribute to this, but government is a major factor. Through government, we have, one, high demand on credit, which drives interest rates up. Two, excessive public ownership of land and resources. Three, environmentalism, which keeps us from working. Four, expensive regulations. Five, excessive general taxation. And six, excessive specific taxation on the petroleum industry, including severance taxes, property taxes, and the federal so-called windfall profits taxes. In Montana and North Dakota, it costs several dollars a barrel more just in state severance taxes and property taxes to produce oil than in Oklahoma, for example. Taxes are driving the oil industry out of the basin. Many of the rigs which have been stacked are now idle, but many have moved to other states and are working. In this year's Montana legislature, Billings Republican Senator Tom Keating has introduced two bills to reduce these taxes. Senate Bill 159 would reduce the severance tax on oil from the scheduled 5% to 3% and Senate Bill 231 would reduce the property tax base on crude oil and gas from 100% of annual net proceeds to 70%. Despite the fact that taxes have driven oil business and jobs from the basin, these proposals to reduce taxes are not popular in the press. For example, on January 13, 1983, the Billings Gazette published an editorial entitled proposed bill not in public interest. This editorial concerned the two bills introduced by Tom Keating. The editor's opinion was that the bills are not in the public's interest. How did he prove that? He proved it on the basis that Tom Keating introduced it. Since Tom Keating has worked in the oil business and since Tom Keating is Tom Keating, of course the bills he introduced are not in the public interest. Unquote. 
Now, I cite that for a very important reason. One of the major problems in the West is that we do have a lot of wild country. And a few years ago, the courts overturned representation by geographical units. In other words, I live in a mountain county here in California, Calaveras County. At what time each county in the state was represented by a senator? Now the state senators, like the assemblymen, are represented by a number of voters. They no longer represent a geographical area. This means that our state senator does not really represent us because the amount of voters here is very slight, negligible. In many areas, it amounts to about a precinct. So what happens? A mountain area and its resources are not properly represented. Now, a legislature, like Congress, does not legislate just in terms of people, but in terms of land and property. And when there is only a representation in terms of people, there is not a fair representation of geographical concerns. So what's happened? Well, you are seeing the destruction of, of a great deal of the West, including Montana, California, Idaho, Nevada, and so on, because of this fact. The cities, especially in many of these states, dominate the countryside, as far as population is concerned. Now, if you put voting entirely on population, you destroy the natural resources, because the population vote is in the cities where they do not understand the facts of geography. So the oil interests in Montana are not properly represented. There's another factor. The ranching interests in Montana and throughout the West are not properly represented. After all, fewer areas are less populated than ranching areas. A ranch takes up a huge acreage. But at the same time, and this is true of Montana and one state after another, those ranch properties are taxed as though they were farmlands. But it takes maybe ten, some places a hundred times as much land on a ranch to produce an equivalent income as farm property. So what happens? By overtaxing it, you destroy it. There's a good book on that that I'd like to call attention to, and it deals with the rancher's problems. It's by Dan Fulton, published by Big Sky Books, Montana State University, Bozeman, Montana, published in 1982. The title is Failure on the Plains, A Rancher's View of the Public Lands Problem. And, of course, this is what he argues. The public lands are supposedly being preserved from being despoiled by the ranchers. But as Fulton points out, the lands in the western states that are in bad condition are the public lands, not the ranchers' lands. 
In other words, the federal government is not managing them properly, whereas the ranchers are managing their land properly. This is what, by the way, the Sagebrush Rebellion in Nevada is all about. And Reagan was all for the Sagebrush Rebellion before his election. Now, when the public lands, which are not forest lands, except in very rare cases, but are grazing lands, are held by the federal government and leased out to a rancher this year and to another the next year, nobody really owns that land. Everybody's going to get what he can out of it while he can, and it's like the old commons. It's not a sound basis. As a result, we have seen nothing but disaster. And Fulton, in this book, tells us why he became an anti-conservationist. Because he believed in the wise use of resources and the preservation of resources. And he feels that the conservation movement is destroying our resources as well as our productivity. His book thus is an important one. By the way, he calls attention to how much land is controlled by federal agencies and gives some very interesting data here. Two government bureaus control nearly 300 million acres of land, one-sixth of the total acres of the whole United States, of the total area. And as a result, you have a considerable amount of mismanagement. But all you hear about is the mismanagement by private interests. And this is done with a great deal of um, falsehood. For example, Fulton calls attention to the myth of the Indian past. And let me quote the almost universal tendency in Western literature, both then and now, is to assume that before a white man came, all was love, milk, and honey. The romantic vision sounds nice, but it doesn't fit. A recent evidence of this is Chet Huntley in his de delightful book about Montana. Huntley wrote of so-called buffalo grass and the buffalo who ate it sparingly, grazing off only the tops of the stems, which grew as high as his magnificent head. Let me interject something there. We know that the buffalo grass was eaten by the buffalo down to the roots. Their hoofs pounded it into dust, the dirt beneath them and the stubble. The dust they created, huge herds running into the hundreds of thousands, could be seen several states away. The country has never seen dust storms comparable to what was routine when the buffalo roamed the plains. Well, to get back to Fulton. Buffalo grass, as a common name, is used for many grasses, some of which in a wet year might grow nearly as high as a buffalo's head. Huntley, however, foreclosed himself from the explanation when he gave the Latin name Buclodactyloides. That is the species usually referred to as buffalo grass but it is not as high as a buffalo's head. 
or even as high as a buffalo's skull lying on the plains. The standard Hitchcock Manual of Grasses lists buffalo grass and describes it. The curly blades form a cover 5 to 10 centimeters, 2 to 4 inches. The culms, or stems, are 5 to 20 centimeters tall, or a maximum of about 8 inches. So he goes on to quote some of the material from the early literature, some of the first people who went into that area, the Lewis and Clark expedition and others, how poor the land was, how they had to cut down poplar trees and skin off the bark to feed it to their mules because there was no grass. He also cites the very remarkable historian James C. Mallon of the University of Kansas. I don't know whether he's still living, but the works he produced in the 40s and 50s are some of the best materials in American historiography and history and should be reprinted. A collected edition of Mallon's works is very much needed. But uh, the data he quotes from Mallon is excellent. So that what we have to say is that the plains area, the inner mountain area, has greatly been improved by the coming of the white man. The white man began the practice of conservation. The disappearance of the buffalo preserved the area from total disaster which was spreading eastward and destroying forests as the buffalo moved further and further east. Had not the white man come, it is very conceivable that in another couple of centuries there would have been no trees left to the Atlantic coast. But New England and the Carolinas and the whole country would be a barren plain because no trees could stand before the buffalo. So it's time we faced facts about what the white man did to this country and stopped kidding ourselves about the reality of our past. One interesting thing in uh, Fulton's book is this. Uh, he describes his early schooling. I quote, Then one year the school hired a girl with training in business subjects, so I took a high school year of bookkeeping and at the same time a year of economics. I learned that credits go on the right and debits on the left, or is it vice versa? I just can't remember which. In economics, I learned the law of satiation. After you eat two or three apples real quick, the next one doesn't taste as good as did the first one. I did learn some basic accounting principles. I can always look at the books and figure out which side to put it on, even if I can't remember whether it is a credit or a debit. The teacher, the girl, whose name I can't remember, was a very intelligent and good teacher. She told us, that governments never pay off their debts. They merely debase their currency. At that time, I was naive and optimistic. So I thought she was talking of ancient history in foreign countries. Since then, I have become less sure and wonder if she meant all governments 
including our own. Well, Fulton's book is very important because what he's talking about, the failure of the ranchers throughout the West, the hard times they're facing, is all too true. Ranching is in trouble. And the ranchers are the one element in the American economy that have resisted controls to the nail. And they've been the subject of reprisals from federal agencies because of that fact. In this county, which was originally mining, lumber, and cattle, there is only one successful working cattle ranch left. All the others are holding jobs on the side because the tax on land and the high costs of operation are making it impossible for the small rancher to go on being only a rancher. While we're on the subject of uh, the countryside and agriculture and so on, I'd like to share with you something from the Farm Journal for mid-February 1983. This is addressed to farmers, but I think it's good for all of you to know about. I quote, Do you know how good you are? Of all the countries in the world, the U.S. is agriculture's reigning heavyweight champ. There isn't even a close contender. But you may be surprised at just how good you are here are facts compiled by Sperry New Holland. One American farmer grows enough food for 68 people here and abroad. That figure has risen dramatically in this century. Back in 1950, you could feed 16. If you were to combine all of the assets of the top 400 U.S. corporations, they would not equal what you have collectively invested in your farming operations. With the food that each American farmer harvests, he creates about nine other jobs in related industries. There are 15 to 17 million people who grade, store, process, package, transport, sell, and prepare food. One-third of the United States' total planted acres comes from six states in 1981, Iowa, Texas, Illinois, North Dakota, Minnesota, and Kansas. U.S. agriculture uses 6.5 million metric tons of steel each year, enough to account for 40,000 jobs in the steel industry. With one modern combine, you can harvest enough wheat in nine seconds to make 70 loaves of bread. Non-farmers in the U.S. outnumber you by 37 to 1. You're only about 2.3% of the population. Following World War I, 30% of Americans farmed for a living. One Soviet farm worker produces 33,000 pounds of food crops per year, but the U.S. farmer produces 375,000 pounds each year. In one year's time, U.S. farm exports fill more than one and a half million freight cars. Each day, over ten ships leave U.S. ports to transport food to our overseas customers. Every time U.S. farm exports increase one billion dollars, 31,700 new jobs are created for Americans. 
about 4 million people are involved in U.S. farming. That's more than the combined total of American steel, oil, electronic, and airline industries. In 1900, farmers averaged 110 bushels of corn from four acres. Today, that's your average yield off one acre, unquote. If you want this data, I'll tell you in a moment where to get it. Let me say this. We forget too often that the number one industry and job producer in the United States is American agriculture. There is only one bigger employer in the United States, and that's federal and state governments combined. So, your most productive element, which produces not only jobs in the countryside, but in the cities, for the steel industry, for every kind of industry, is agriculture. Now, if you want this data, Sperry New Holland has brochures containing these facts and more. For information, write, Reliable American Farmer, Sperry New Holland-215, New Holland, Pennsylvania, 17557. Well, now, very briefly to another subject. <clears throat> I've mentioned more than once the Daily News Digest, which is put out from P.O. Box 39850, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069. And it costs $97 a year. This is not something of importance, but of interest. It speaks about the top offenses in public schools. In 1940, these were the critical offenses. Talking, in, in the order of significance, talking, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of turn in line, wearing improper clothes, not putting clothes in wastebaskets. In 1982, 42 years later, here are the top offenses in public schools. Rape, robbery, assault, burglary, arson, bombings, murder, suicide, absenteeism, vandalism, extortion, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, gang warfare, pregnancies, abortion, venereal diseases. Quite a change, is it not? And some people are still assuming that the public schools are just what they were when they were in school. 40 years ago or 20 and 30 years ago. They don't know what's happening and apparently don't want to know. Well, now to the March 1983 Harper's Magazine. There is a very important article in it on Ivan the Terrible Soldier. This is by Andrew Cockburn, and the subtitle is Inside the Bungling Red Army. It's an excellent account of what the realities of military life are like in the Soviet Union. And 
the data was collected right here in the United States. The reason it was collected here was a very simple one. There are a lot of refugees from the Soviet Union in the United States, more than we realize. As a matter of fact, by 1982, there were 30,000 former Soviet citizens living in the Brighton Beach section of Brooklyn alone. Now, what Cockburn, who is a contributing editor of Defense Week, has done is to collect data from these people and other sources, and he has a book on this which is going to be published this year by Random House in May of this year, entitled The Threat Inside the Soviet Military Machine. Well, talking to these ex-draftees and veterans and so on, of the uh, Soviet army, he comes up with a very uh, grim picture of the incompetence and internal dissension within the Soviet army. He says that, uh, for one thing, the draftees are in bad shape in the Soviet army. Soviet soldiers, and I quote, have little or no opportunity to see their families, read newspapers, or even leave their bases. Food is bad and undernourishing. One survivor reported having, having been served dried fish for supper every night for two years. Vitamin-related diseases like night blindness and running sores are common. The whole year they are fed on rotten potatoes, remembers Alex Rontenor, a lieutenant drafted in August 1973. Even in the summer they are not given fresh vegetables. Much of the food is canned, but the men don't even get the full amount because the soldiers who work in the kitchen steal it and pass it on to their friends. Stealing, in fact, seems to have been one of the main occupations of these soldiers. A Soviet conscript is paid next to nothing, three and a half rubles a month, which is the rough equivalent of about $6.50 a month. This does not mean that Russian soldiers do not have extra cash, simply that whatever they have comes either in the mails from home or from stealing and selling state property. So he goes on to describe how much stealing there is. Everything they can lay their hands on, they steal and sell. Uh, he cites this quotation from one uh, former anti-aircraft radar specialist. If a soldier is supposed to guard the store, and since he's only human, he wants to sleep, he will go into his booth. At this, someone who needs spare parts, tires, for example, will go into the store and steal what he needs. The crew of the vehicle will discover that they have no wheels. If war were to start now, such deficiencies would become apparent in the Soviet army. In the unit where I served, for example, I had a radar. According to regulations, I should have had two of them, but only one of them actually worked, and then only half the time. Why? Because the officers in my unit like to drink and to get extra money, and how are they going to get it? They would immediately think of selling spare parts. What kind of parts? K-1 
cables, various generators for the radar, various kinds of radio equipment that is in short supply in civilian stores, but that is available in the Army. As a result, the station would work only for a short time and then die out. My equipment was on its last legs. The second radar would not work because there was no generator. The officer sold it and drank away the money. Drink is illegal for the conscript rank and file, although officers are allowed to buy it. This attempt to keep the men sober does not meet with much success, judging by all personal accounts. Barred by law from possessing drink, the troops exhibit tremendous ingenuity in getting a hold of it. Well, everything is done. Uh, the ingenuity and in getting liquor and uh, swapping equipment and uh, gasoline, everything for it is tremendous. Then here's some interesting data. When only one-third of these men were re-enlisting in the U.S. forces after completing their contracted tour of duty, it was considered a cause for alarm. Such problems seem pale in comparison with the problems facing the Soviet. So unpopular is life in the ranks that only about 1% of the draftees re-enlist at the end of their two years, despite considerable blandishments for them to do so in the form of pay and benefits. Then there is this. Uh, a former sergeant has described in a Radio Liberty interview how first-year soldiers were often denied cartridges on the rifle range for fear they might take aim at their seniors. Veterans of the Czech invasion recall how afraid the officers were of the men when they were issued live ammunition before crossing the border. The article gives a great deal of uh, very interesting decay, uh, detail about the decay in morale, the decay in uh, equipment, and so on in the Soviet uh, forces. Their equipment is inferior. They have an incompetence in one area after another. The gist of the author's conclusion is that uh, we're not too well off ourselves. We have problems with our military. So in the next war, we can be sure of one thing. Neither side is going to fight very well. And the Soviet side, not at all well. Now, very briefly, to call attention to the fact that some very... Interesting material is coming out on Andropov, the new head of the Soviet regime. Harper's, for February 1983, has an article by Andrew Nagorsky, The Making of Andropov, 1982, which is a very good statement by someone who is a... Uh, foreign correspondent in Moscow, describing the machinations of Andropov as KGB head to do in Brezhnev's family and associates and to make himself next in line for power. 
then the American Legion magazine for February 1983, has an interesting article by Ernest Cuneo on Andropov and the KGB revolution, because it is really a revolution in that the internal security police has taken over. I know that uh, before Brezhnev's death, Otto Scott and I were discussing this possibility that the KGB might take over. This was almost a year before Brezhnev died. I mentioned that some felt that this could happen, and Otto observed that if it did happen, it would indicate how far gone the internal situation was when the secret police, whose concern would be essentially keeping the people down, would have priority. And this is dealt with by Irving Crystal in the Conservative Digest for January of 83, Bureaucratic Mafia Rules the USSR. And this one sentence is very telling, and in part it is because this leadership is radically insecure and bereft of popular support. An insecure mafia is always an aggressive mafia." Unquote. Now to something more on the Soviet Union. An interesting book by Israel Emiot, The Birobizhdan Affair, a Yiddish writer in Siberia, published in 1981 by the Jewish Publication Society of America, deals with what happened to a true blue uh, Marxist when the tide changed from being someone working in the current of things, he suddenly was a criminal. Why? When he was put into prison and then into um, a position of being treated as an enemy of the state, his situation was very difficult because he felt he had been a good, loyal Soviet subject. This one passage is very telling. On page 48, I quote, My struggles against the inquisitors and the prosecutors were in vain, as were my repeated declarations that nothing I had done was anti-Soviet, and that the entire indictment was not only ludicrous but in direct violation of the Soviet Constitution. Hadn't President, President Kalinin himself described the Jewish Autonomous Region as a place where the national identity of Russian Jewry could and should be preserved? Everything has its special time, my interrogator patiently enlightened me. In our country, policies change frequently. Our dialectical approach is dictated by life itself. What was correct yesterday may be incorrect, even criminal, today. Unquote. A superb statement of existentialism. Again and again, people in the Soviet Union who were intensely loyal were suddenly wiped out, thrown into slave labor camps, because the party line changed 
and they were on the wrong side. Well, there is, in the midst of uh, all the horrors that he describes, one section that is humorous. It's about a slave labor camp and what happens when 300 women prisoners from Mongolia are introduced into it. And I think this is worth uh, reading in part. One day, 300 young Mongolian women were deposited in our midst, sturdy, robust, sex-starved, blood pulsing fiercely in their faces and their full-blown bodies. If anyone had asked Captain Yermolov whether he was agreeable to accepting that shipment of 300 women, his answer would have been a resounding no. They'd all been convicted of rob robbery, banditry, or murder. And Yermolov knew from experience that such offenders have no desire to work, that they live off the backs of the politicals, but nobody asked him for his opinion. Well, these women were introduced into this prison, and Yermolov, a brutal uh, camp director, had a problem. Uh, these women immediately refused to be trained. Uh, he hoped that since they were strong, they would be good workers. But to continue, right from the start, they were a big dis disappointment to him. It began when two of our camp guards went to the women's camp and did not return at the expected time. These two guards happened to be real thugs who had har harassed and terrorized the political prisoners at every turn. So we weren't sorry to hear they were missing. Nobody knew what had happened to them until Nietorenko confided to someone that they had been taken to the hospital more dead than alive. Those lusty Mongolian wenches had raped them and then kicked them out. This wouldn't have bothered Yermolov so much if those women only had done their share of the work, but they wouldn't lift a finger even for their own comfort. One day he and his entourage visited their camp and warned them of the consequences of such behavior. Whereupon the Mongolian women tore off all their clothes and screamed, Give us some men first, and then we'll go out to work. Yermolov barely made it out of there alive. He was so alarmed by this turn of events that he began to question the wisdom of the higher authorities. Why do they send me common criminals in a camp for politicals? As if he himself didn't appoint gangsters as brigade leaders in his own camp. Soon a rumor was circulating that Yermolov was cracking up and that he was constantly banging his fists on the table and saying things like, I'll write to Moscow to Stalin himself. I built a model camp out of a wilderness. I saved the government thousands of rubles by using lousy cripples in my shops, and now they send me a plague like this. Every day there were new misfortunes. Here the women wrecked their bunks. There they knocked out the window panes. They threw rocks at the sentries in the watchtowers. The upshot was that for us regulars, life became a little easier for a while. Yermolov rarely showed his face in the camp. He grew meaner than ever. As soon as anyone saw him coming through the camp gate, the alarm was spread in all the barracks. Uh, the hawk is coming. Yermolov became so busy with the women's camp that he had no time for anything else. In the meantime, Dr. S. cried harder than ever to excuse more and more prisoners from work for a day or two. Without Yermolov present, the work assigners and the brigade leaders 
were helpless. Fedko, the clown, entertained the men with stories about the troubles Yermolov was having with his own wife. Apparently, he was not only hiding from us, but from her as well. Day and night, he argued with the central office to free him of the burden of those women who refused to do any work and who undermine my authority. His wife, however, saw the matter in a completely different light. Right at the camp gate, in front of squads of prisoners, she berated him, always playing around with those tramps. You forget all about your wife and kids. You bastard, if you don't come home now, this minute. Fedko described how our tough chief, who always looked down his nose at the prisoners, followed his wife home like a meek little lamb as she filled the air with her choice language. I'll scratch your eyes out, you son of a whore. I'll teach you to fool around with those tarts. I'll burn that whole damn place down with you and those bitches inside of it, a woman's camp he needs. The specters held their sides with laughter. What sweet revenge, the chief himself. What a rare moment to see with our own eyes the mortification of our tormentor. Eventually, Yermolov had his way. The 300 Mongolian women were transferred to a camp on the Lena River. But Yermolov's sky had clouded. His throne had become a little shaky. Well, <laughs> it's a delightful book. And uh, a grim book at some t- uh, in many, many portions. But all the same, very important and significant reading. Well, there's a lot more here. I don't have time for some of the more important, lengthier things, but I'd like to read this to you from Pulpit Helps. Americans among world's most religious people. Americans are happier, more religious, prouder of their work in their country, and more willing to fight for it than Western Europeans and the Japanese, reported a poll conducted by a Catholic research group. Gallup posters in hour-long interviews in 16 countries, including South Africa, compiled these preliminary findings for the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. One finding that startled researchers was the high place Americans give to God and religious values in their lives. Asked whether they believe in God, 95% answered yes, placing them at the head of the list in a tie with Ireland. Among other countries, only 39% of Japanese respondents said they believed in God, while 75% of Europeans affirmed a deity. Some 81% of the Americans claimed to be a religious person. Only 1% were convinced atheists. In Japan, only 25% claimed to be religious. In Europe, 63% claimed to be religious. Gordon Hell, Joint Managing Director of Gallup in London, commented, You've got this phenomenon where over 60% say they are religious, and yet weekly church attendance ranges from 72% in Ireland to 3% in Denmark. 75% of Americans said they had a great deal of confidence in the churches or organized religion. Half of all Americans also said they have little or no confidence in the press. 71% of Americans responding 
said they believe in life after death. But although some 84% believe in heaven, only 67% believe in hell. End of quote. Now, I think that's very interesting and revealing when you combine it with the fact that 86% of the men in media are definitely either in the atheistic camp or anti-religious to some degree. In other words, there is a radical discrepancy between the men who give us the news, who dominate television and the press, and the men who are walking the streets of this country. We are not properly represented. A sad fact is that when we have some of our side take over something, they are so cowardly that they very often make greater retreats than existed in that portion of the media before they took over. I won't mention any names here, but I definitely could. So we have a very sad situation. This country is not properly represented. Incidentally, one of the interesting facts is that for a couple of generations, almost everyone running for the presidency, not everyone, but most of them, have appealed to this broad spectrum of Americans. They've appealed to a conservative impulse. I sometimes wish that uh, there would be an addition out of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's campaign speeches when he ran against Herbert Hoover because he ran as the conservative opposing a man, Herbert Hoover, who was supposedly too much to the left, spending too much money and taxing too much. And what... Uh, he opposed was the growing bureaucracy. Roosevelt promised to cut the bureaucracy, to cut taxation, to have an immediate and drastic reduction in governmental expenditures. In fact, that was a part of the Democratic Party platform in 1932, so that the platform and his own speeches in terms of which Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected was most conservative and was abandoned on the day of his election. Reagan, at least, was conservative enough to wait for a few hours after his election. Well, so it goes, and so it must not go in the days ahead. This is why I have urged that people on our side support political campaigns and political groups on our side. It's the only way we can win. We have to put our money where our faith and our heart are. Well, it has been good to be with you. I think, by the way, I have a minute, so I'd like to... Uh, 
pass on a little story to you, which comes from Botkin's American Anecdotes. And I can remember when this kind of thing was true out here in the West. This is from Oregon and the Siskiyous. I quote, plenty of Joneses here in the Siskiyous. I remember a few years back when you'd have thought every other man in the county was named Jones. You know, it's again the law in Oregon to kill deer out of season, but most of the mountain folk don't pay much attention to it. One day, Samson Jones came into Gold Beach with three mules loaded to their hocks with jerky, that's dried venison, and started peddling it. He was arrested and brought before the J.P. and a jury impaneled. Fact is, seven of the jury was named Jones, and believe it or not, even his honor itself was named Jones. Witnesses were called, and the jerky put in evidence. One man took the stand, chawed a hunk of the dried meat, and solemnly pronounced it sturgeon. He swore he had dried thousands of pounds of sturgeon, and nobody could fool him. Another as positively swore it was mutton. Another said it was calf, another shark, another goat, and another mule or maybe burrow. The case was presented, and the jury deliberated as long as any of them could eat jerky and then announce their verdict. It read, We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty, but re recommend that next time he do not bring in so much at one load. Well, with that I will close. It's been good again to be with you, and I'll look forward to our next time together. I want to thank those of you who sent in material to be used. I do use some of it, but sometimes there's so much I can't use all of it, and some of my own collected material I retire as it gets out of, day, out of date. But I do enjoy getting it, and I do appreciate it. Thank you. I'll be with you again in two weeks. I'm taking a trip, by the way, end of this week, to Maine for a very important trial there. I'll tell you more about it in our next time together. Thank you.